I'm James Brian Smith. Welcome to the Things Above podcast. You're listening to episode 46. This is a podcast for what we call Mind Discipleship. We want to help people learn how to set their minds and their hearts on things above. And from time to time, we have guests on our show, and we call these Things Above Conversations, and this episode is one of those. Well, my guest today is Emily P. Freeman. She's no stranger to this podcast because she was the very first guest ever on the Things Above podcast guest, Things Above Conversation, we call them. So, Emily... Uh, you're back again. Back again. We've got you, and we have a reason to have you back again because you have a new book. Yes, sir. And we talked about Simply Tuesday last time, but this book is hot off the press, as they say, and uh, it's fairly new to the world. It's just come about, and I love it, and we'll talk about how much I love it forever. I'll say so many wonderful things because it's great, but it does actually come from the podcast because, and, and share with our listeners because you were going to write a book on this subject of the next right thing, which you'll talk about. And then it became, well, I'm not going to tell your story. You tell your story because it was book, podcast, book. An interesting progression. Yes. One you wouldn't expect. You wouldn't. Well, you know, as a writer, you have ideas. And when you have ideas and you've, you've explored those ideas in a certain way, over time you begin to think it's always going to manifest itself in the same way. And so I had a book come out, Simply Tuesday, in 2015, and about a year later, I started having all these ideas of how decisions hold a lot of power, unmade decisions hold a lot of power in our lives. And I was noticing it because I had some decisions I had to make, and they were permeating everything, I, what I was thinking about, praying about, talking about, and I started paying attention to what I was paying attention to because I had this decision to make. And, um, but then I was... I was sort of started to take notes on not just whether or not I wanted to do the thing or what decision to make, but also on the process um, of how it was impacting me and forming me as a person. And I started thinking about all the ways that God often uses things like unmade decisions to form us spiritually and how I was drawing closer to God in ways that I might not have had the opportunity to do if it weren't for some of these difficult decisions. So I'm taking notes, and that's kind of what's happening on the outside. Um, but I'm thinking, oh, maybe this is my next book. So I decided, I set a date on the calendar, Jim. I was like, okay, I'm going to start work outlining this book on this particular date. And I, you know, I sat down that day, and I worked on it, and it was the literal worst. It was not coming out the way that my other books had. It didn't really have much life to it, but I thought, well, it's just the beginning. You have to have a bad first draft. So I worked on it, and I tried to wrangle a book outline out of that thing, out of those ideas, for a while, a few months. I was going to ask how long. Yeah, I think it was a few months, and I was super discouraged. Um, I even talked to my editor who had done my other books, and I was like, hey, I've got this idea, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, mm-hmm, that's great. <laughs> like she was, she was interested in because she likes me. But I don't know that she was interested in this as a book because I wasn't able to quite articulate it yet. Mm-hmm. So I set it aside thinking, well, this just it's just not a book. And by the way, maybe I'm not – maybe I'm done writing books. Maybe my oh, life wow. as an author is over. I mean, I'm being a little dramatic. That is discouraging. <clears throat> but it was. It was mm-hmm. discouraging, and I just thought uh, maybe I forgot how to do this. But at the same time, I was um, rec- I was paying attention also to how I was consuming content. I had gotten into um, – 
listening to audiobooks a lot and I also love them. love them and podcasts more. I was on the scripture reading team at my church at that time and was noticing how how much I enjoyed the process of speaking scripture out into the room, that there was a different – it just – it pokes something alive and awake in me personally to say the words differently than it does to write the words and know that they're going to be read. Um, so you see where this is going. Over time, I realized like, oh, this idea, what if it, it started, it started to, this sounds weird, but it started to feel like this decision-making um, idea of unmade decisions that it didn't want to be written. It wanted to be spoken. Mm. It wanted to be worked out through the spoken word. And I thought, you know, if only... There was a medium where, like, you could talk words and people could, like, listen to them. Of course, there is. It's called podcasting. Podcasting, yeah. Yeah, so I I ended up kind of coming up with a fake, you know, a faux, like, well, if I were to start a podcast, I have no idea how to do that. But if I were to, uh, what would I, what would be the episodes? And when I started thinking of this idea episodically, like, you know, one, two, three, in 10, 12 minutes, little bursts, well, man, they came out quickly at that point. And then I, I realized, oh, maybe there's something here. And so I knew, okay, I'm going to start this podcast. I'm just going to call it the next right thing. And it might not work, but the pain of tr- of not trying it was greater than the pain of trying it and it failing. So here we are. Okay. So, and, and the difference is when you're writing like a chapter of a book, that's one thing. Yeah. As a writer, I know what that's like. I think chapter, I know word count. I know what that's going to look like. But podcast is different. So it sounds like what you're saying is the idea for not a chapter, but a podcast episode fit very nicely into, so you had something in your mind, that's the subject, that's the, that's the title, that's the whatever of the podcast episode. That's right. It, 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 it birthed more easily through the spoken medium of podcast than it did the written medium of a chapter. It did partly because a chapter demands a narrative arc in a larger story. And an episode of a podcast can stand alone if you want it to. And I didn't have the big picture enough personally for what I was doing um, in order to create a book outline with a beginning, middle, and end. Um, So it lent itself really well to let's just explore this and talk through it. Um, But then over time, as I did that for a while, then I started to find the thread of somewhat of a – even though it's nonfiction, there's still a narrative arc in nonfiction books. And so I started to find that, but it took time. So mm-hmm. I'm really grateful for that podcast, um, for that format to be able to find something that could then be written and consumed, you know, by a reader. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm very grateful for the podcast as well, because the next right thing was something I stumbled onto. I'm just going to say stumbled, but I didn't literally fall down, but uh, came across after looking at many, many, many different forms of podcasts because there's there are many styles. That's right. Often it's two people bantering and there's many and they're wonderful. I listen to all kinds as you probably do as well. Yeah. But when I listen to the next right thing podcast, something kind of like when you said the book emerged more it emerged in that medium. When I heard your format and style, I went, "That's what I've been searching for." Because I'd been searching for what I wanted, what became the things above podcast to be. So I unabashedly, as I said in episode five, when you were first on our our show, absolutely stole everything I could of how you do everything from the type of mic that you use. And that's uh, imitations, the highest form of flattery. So I'm grateful for that, for the next right thing 
But also, I think what's so brilliant about The Next Right Thing, the podcast as well as the book, is everybody makes decisions, right? right? Yeah. I mean, it is ubiquitous. I No one is... Is can avoid that reality. We make so. I think you say in the book. I think you have a statistic: thirty-five thousand decisions a day. A day, Jim. That's a what day. they say. Yeah. I mean, it's the thing you can't retire from. Quit. Defer. You can put it off, but it's going to catch up with you. These unmade decisions, right? And when I, you know, if you look anywhere and try to find what's the number, there's a study. Cornell University has a study that say we make. I think it. Uh, I think it was 200 decisions on food alone. On food day. alone, yeah. You have that in the book, right. Is that what? Okay, so then that must be right because I probably looked it up and got it right in I the read book. your book, and it's really quite good. You might <laughs> want to do that. No. Right, I know. I should refresh my <laughs> yeah. own memory there. But it seems like a lie, right? Like there's no way 35,000, which of course a lot of those are, you know, second nature, subconscious. But of those 35,000, some of us, you know, are bound to keep us awake at night, and those are the ones that can really lead to decision fatigue and chronic hesitation and really can get our attention. Yeah. I mean, when I first saw the number 35,000, I went, okay, that's crazy. But then when you think about, it's not just the color of socks I'm going to wear today, but literally every sentence that I speak is full of my word choice. So I thought, oh yeah, we're easily can get to the 35,000 because, but it would fatigue me to think about that I make that many, (laughs) but so many of them are not that crucial. Mm-hmm. I mean, I sock color, okay. But you're alluding to the fact, the, rea- the reality, that it's the big ones. Yeah. And I think that's what, what I see in the podcast as well as in the book is that you want to help people, and you say this in the book, I just want to help people. Yeah. Talk about that. Like what is, I, I feel that in the podcast as well as the book, that you just want to come alongside and help people. I mean, where does that come from, Your your de- your desire to help people in this can be very painful situation of bigger decisions. You know, uh, Dallas Willard, you know the guy. Familiar. He talked about uh, the importance of paying attention to what frustrates us. Mm. And that really struck me because, you know, growing up a Christian, sometimes we're not always taught to pay attention to what frustrates us. We're taught to not be frustrated and to be, you know, kind and to be peaceful. And, And all of those things, of course, are good. But I think it is important to pay attention to what frustrates us because it carries within it a seed of our um, of our desire and maybe even our giftedness and where we are called to help people. And something that frustrates me is when I um, listen to people and we have conversations and I get the sense that people see God as a cosmic trickster, that there is a secret right answer to a decision that we are to make about our lives, whether that be who to marry or what, how, which house to buy or which job to take. And, and that he knows the answer, but he's keeping it from us, and he's going to make us figure it out on our own. And if we choose wrong, whoa, you better look out. And that view of God is one that I'm increasingly more and more uncomfortable with. Yeah. And I sense uh, when I talk with people, there's a lot of fear. And Christians, you would think we would be people who would be hope filled with hope and you know, great confidence that God is with us and he's taking care of us and he's going to lead and guide us. And sometimes we feel that way until we have a huge decision to make. And then we're so terrified we're going to make the wrong choice um, that it can paralyze us and lead to what I call chronic hesitation. Like I'm just chronically hesitant. I don't trust myself. I don't trust Christ in me. And um, I have to figure this out on my own. And so that that is really the driving force in many ways behind why 
I think this is so important and why I like to talk about it in ways that brings it to this moment, today, because it, it really is, though there is great theology that I love to learn about and talk about and sit under, um, this is where it's the, the theology of everyday life, mm-hmm. where the life of Christ becomes real. Um, I mean, there's nothing more real than bringing him into my daily decisions and recognizing that I have a God who um, does not uh, drop the other shoe or pull out rugs from beneath me or try to trick me or make me guess or roll his eyes at me or tease me. Um, that's not the God that we see in Jesus. And so that really is, you know, yes, I want to help ma- people make better decisions. But really behind that, Jim, I, I really want to help people make decisions in a better way with our friend Jesus. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're describing what I would call a false narrative, that, yes. that narrative that there's a God who is the trickster, who has the one perfect thing and you've got to find it, you know, right. somehow the magic eight ball, whatever you're going to, whatever tool you use to find it. And it is, it is very, as you said, paralyzing It is to think there is this one, this one thing. And I, I often would push Dallas on these kinds of things. And, and, and I know that he personally believed that God didn't have one perfect will for most of the things in our lives, mm-hmm. which I remember when he first said that, I thought, that's that's against the narrative, because I always thought, no, there is a perfect will, even down to my socks. <laughs> right. Not just the biggies like marriage partner, but he has the perfect will for my socks today. So <laughs> I'm really in trouble. But what you do is, is so liberating, and you have such a gentle spirit, a, a pastoral tone, if you will, mm-hmm. as you write, and certainly in the podcast as well. And that's what I love about the the book. And I'm so glad that the book didn't become a book at first, became a podcast. Amen. Thank you. Hallelujah. <laughs> but then did become a book yeah. because, as we both know, that's a different medium. And, that's right. And, and it has its own beauty because a book is something – I'm very tactile. I like to hold a book. I like to um, – it's been dark and rainy here in Wichita, and I've been sitting by the fire with your book. Look at that. Yeah, it's different than a podcast. It is. It is. So I, I, I can feel it and touch it and move, and I can mark in it. Mm-hmm. I love marking in books. And I, when, when my daughter Hope was small, she would see me highlighting all the time. And she came up to me one day and she said, Dad, why do you like coloring in your books? Because <laughs> that's, that's all she knew. Was that's so cute. She, she knew markers were for coloring. Sure. And she thought, Dad's coloring. And I didn't know how to say I'm not coloring. But kind of. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I'm coloring them, but so I can lift out important passages, which I've done with a book, and so I want to, if you're okay with that, I want to go Let's ahead do and, it. I love it. and dig into that. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit in the book, all the way to chapter 9, which is my favorite chapter in the book. So I want to be sure that we cover that if we don't have enough time for other things. But your chapter 9 is called Make the Most Important List. Great title, because anytime you use hyperbole, like the most, the, right. the, the, the biggest, greatest, you know, you so I'm drawn in by is. most right there. I got to know what that is. What's the most important list? Um, but then you're, you're surprising there because you, uh, you kind of speak against the typical list that most of us do. I've done. I'm imagining just about every listener out here has done, which is the pro-con. You're not pro the pro-con. I'm con the pro-con. <laughs> con the pro-con list. <laughs> Talk about why that's not maybe the best approach, the pro-con. I mean, you don't just bash it entirely. Sure. Why is that not the most important list, and then what is? Well, the pro-con list is a reaction to a decision that's right in front of me, sometimes one on a deadline, and one that I'm uh, really worried about. 
And it's like, I just got to do a pro-con list. That's usually, usually I pull that out when I just don't know what to do and I'm weighing an actual decision that's here and it's almost reactionary, um, which again, there's nothing wrong. Just, you know, it's, it can be a tool and we've all used it and it can give us important information. But I've really not ever met a human person who has taken a pro-con list and used it exactly to uh, make their next decision. We don't really take those and, ha- and obey it completely. Our decisions are more nuanced than that because we know that if something is on, you know, if you have an, a whole list of cons, 10 cons and just one pro, you would say, okay, well, there's, you know, 10 things against it, so we're not going to do the thing. But if the one pro is like the most important thing to you in your life, well, then, you know, that's going to outweigh 10 negative things. So, but again, you can, we can, you know, assess that because we're grownups and, you know, we know how to figure that out from a pro-con list. But why not get to the heart of the thing in the first place by making what I call the most important list, which is not so reactionary. Instead, it's, it's a list of response to the life that, uh, as Parker Palmer would say, that wants to be lived in us. And that is a life energy list. That's what I call it. I wish I had like a really cool name, but I don't. So we're just going to call it that. Um, but really, this is just a list that you um, that I make more in reflection upon my life than in a moment when I have a decision to make right now. But that's why I think it's so valuable to live a life of reflection. And this is one example, a really practical way of doing that is I will just simply take a, a, a period of time, so maybe the last 30 days, and then I'll choose a uh, area of life or a category of life. So let's say work for the last 30 days, and I'll make I'll ask myself two questions about my work during that specific timeline. And the questions are, what is life draining in my work right now or in the last 30 days? And what is life giving? And you make the list and you write it down. And I would highly suggest you write it down because some people think, well, I'll just do that in my head. But there's something important about kind of keeping record and forcing yourself to make that act, to actually make the list. And what I've discovered in doing that is that Though we can't ever eliminate all the things from our life draining list, that's just not responsible, but I guarantee you there will be things that show up on the life draining list that you can eliminate or that will inform you uh, when when the time comes for a decision to be made about work in that area of life or even about home or family or whatever, um, that life energy list can be used to remind you who you are, how you're made how you're wired, what your giftings are, and what they aren't. And it can help us filter future, quote-unquote, opportunities that come across our, you know, our way or things that we might be asked to do, uh, different volunteer things. It can just help us know what is life-giving, what is um, life-draining. And that can help us live our life aware of our life rather than always every time a decision comes we're having to respond to it you know with a pro con list like oh should i uh, it's sort of sort of a way of getting ahead of those big decisions mm-hmm. i like that a lot i like that a lot and and that's i think so helpful because um what you're saying then about the pro con that it, what doesn't work about that is that um, we think it's going to be a mathematical equation, like, well, there's more on this side than that side that this isn't obvious, but it's not. As you it's said, it, 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 there's there's weight to certain ones and that sort of thing. I also think that, um, and you do talk about this in the book and, and in the podcast in several places, but, you know, I, I talked about it in a previous episode that, that worry is just superstition. Worry is thinking I actually have the power to make a difference by worrying about this thing, right? And it, it's silly. But I think a lot of decision making is superstitious as well. That we, we do sort of, we call it fleecing if we want to say we're yeah. Christian, 
we're going to throw out to God, give me a sign, or maybe less spiritual and it's, uh, you know, w- w- the next thing that comes my way will answer that. It, we do really, why do we do superstitious things when it comes to making a decision? I don't know what that is in me, but I know that I do it. Right, yeah. Whether it's flipping open the Bible and finding the Word or whatever it is, this is going to solve it. What's at the core of that? I think, again, it comes back to fear. I think we don't trust ourselves, and we don't trust ourselves to hear the voice of God. Um, I think it might have been Brendan Manning who said, oftentimes when uh, we're waiting on God, it turns out he's actually waiting on us. Mm. And in some ways that those things that we do, superstitious things or, you know, constant sometimes some people's superstition is over research (laughs) Mm. it's just like i have to wait until i have all of the facts and sometimes life doesn't wait for the facts or the research we just have to make a choice um but it's i think it comes down to it's easier to point to the thing like the thing outside of me if i could just find um, a sign or something i could point to to where if this decision goes poorly it wasn't my fault if the results of this decision, I can say, well, but I heard from God or I, this fleece thing or this whatever, I think it kind of separates us from the decision. But it's all of this, you know, Jan Johnson talks about it's all of all of this is about um, union with God, that spiritual formation is all about really it's not about the practices. It's that the practices bring us closer to God. And it's I think decision making really is a formational a part of our lives, mm-hmm. but we try to outsource it with these superstitious practices or trying to get other people's opinions, which obviously that can be part of the process. But I think sometimes we're being invited to um, to walk with Jesus, to listen to him, and then to to pray and to listen, and then just to simply do the next right thing that we know to do at the time and to trust that if our next right thing turns out wrong— that it's going to be okay, that God is still with us, and he's perfectly capable of telling us right or left, this or that. And if he doesn't, then we can choose, and mm-hmm. we can know that that's, that that's okay. That that's okay, and that's a big one. You said, you'd used a word there in your last answer, and that was fear. You tell a story in the book about uh, a trip that you were afraid to go on, yeah. and that you got some good advice from, I think, maybe the person running the trip who said something to the effect of, um, there may be a lot of reasons for you to say no to this trip, but please don't let fear be one of them. Tell, tell us that story about how you came to understand how fear does often drive decisions, things we say no to, and how you, in that instance you were able not to let fear be the driving factor in that decision. Well, I was invited to go with Compassion International to travel to the Philippines to see what um, Compassion was doing um, for children in the name of Jesus. And I really wanted to go. But then I looked on a map, Jim, <laughs> yeah. and I saw how very far away a the Philippines. A lot of water. Lots of water between North Carolina, lots of land and water between North Carolina and Southeast Asia. And I had never, I had been out of the country maybe at that point, maybe to Spain, but, you know, Europe is way closer to North Carolina than is the Philippines. And so I just thought, well, I'm, I don't know if it's wise. You know, a lot of times I, you know, I can trick myself into thinking I'm being wise when really I'm afraid. (laughs) And so um, I just kind of went back and forth. I said no. I pretended to say no in my head, but that didn't quite sit well. Then I pretended to say yes, and that 
well, that didn't feel good either. And I went back and forth, um, but it came down to two things I was afraid of. And one of them I've sort of alluded to, but I'll just flat out say it. I was afraid of the trip. I was just straight up afraid to fly that far for that long without stopping. Um, And number two, once I got there, I didn't like the uh, probability of me getting sick in a foreign country. Just this, just very practical and honest. Um, I think a lot of us, if we were honest with ourselves, we would say, you know, I don't love to travel. Don't love being sick in a foreign country or even just being sick, period. But especially when you're away from home. And those were those were two narratives running in the back of my mind that were driving um, my decision. But I I probably didn't admit that at the time. I just sort of felt this like, "Mm, I don't know. I don't know if I should do it. Now, here's something I'll say. If I would have said no to that trip, I think it would have been okay. I think God would have been fine with it if I would have said no and stayed home. Um, I don't think it would have been wrong necessarily, but I do think I would have missed out on some mm. things. And so when I called up, I talked to the trip leader, Sean Groves. He was leading our trip, and um, that's when we had that conversation, and I was just sharing with him my hesitations. I don't even know, Jim, if I told him what I just told you, if those were the reasons. Maybe mm. I alluded to it a little bit, but he could read between the lines, and that's when he said there may be a lot of reasons for you not to go on this trip, but please don't let fear be one of them. And that's when I realized, oh, I can't think of a good. Re- I can't think of a reason that is good. Um, all I can think of are reasons that are led by fear, and that's when, or pushed by fear, I should say, because that's when I began to um, recognize the difference between being pushed by fear and being led by love. And so, in that particular circumstance, I felt the invitation, love's invitation, to me, so that I and I decided to say no to being pushed around by fear. But um, I can't say I always have done that, but mm-hmm. I did in that situation. And you got terribly sick on the trip. No. no. I didn't, but I did get real nervous on the way over. (laughs) But I survived it. But you were in the kingdom and it worked out. It did. It did. Indeed. That's that's good. (laughs) You know, uh, one of the things that I think we we do process when we're making decisions, and for good, I think mostly can be, and you talk about in our bodies, we feel a lifting at times. We feel a and I, I think there is something to, I mean, this is a question ultimately for you. What about hunches? What about intuition? What about gut? Because I think a lot of people come back to decisions and say, boy, I had a lot of information. Some of it was conflicting. But at the end of the day, somewhere inside, I sensed this was the right, the next right thing for me. Yeah. Um, talk about that, that idea that somehow there's an internal Maybe our bodies play a role and all that. Yeah, it's so valid. And I want to say that I think I have been, I don't know if it's, I don't know how I've been trained up in this, but I think a lot of us have been taught to trust the facts and to ignore any feelings, hunches. Only the facts are valid. Now, it maybe it depends on your family of upbringing or, or your background or even your faith, depending on which thing you give more attention to. But I would say that all of us approach um, life Um, And including our decisions, uh, usually through one of three lenses, through the lens of feeling in our heart, through the lens of thinking or our head, or through the lens of intuition or gut. And really pretty much everybody can fall into one of those three categories. And um, I tend to lead with my heart. um, But that doesn't mean I don't have a head or an intuition. It just means that I feel things first, and then I have to think about maybe what they mean. Um, But so I, I say that to say... All of those ways of, you know, thinking, feeling, and and um, intuition are all valid ways to see the world. That's the lens through which we uh, 
see things. Um, but the idea, I think, though, is when it comes to a tricky decision or a hard decision, I think um, the wholehearted way, and talk about wholeness, the wholehearted way to move through that is to begin to integrate maybe inactivate those areas that might not be as mature or, or fully formed. Um, and that's where leaning on other people, um, listening to the voice of God, and trusting, uh, you know, because Jesus moved through the world, all of those were fully formed in him. You know, there was a wholeness in Jesus. And so when I think about, like, that hunch or that intuition, man, pay attention to that. When I talk to people who lead with their gut, um, and then I ask them, when they've regretted decisions, when, they, when they've made a decision and they later look back and they think, oh, I should not have done that thing, what was the reason for their regret? And many of them have told me it's because I didn't trust my gut because mm-hmm. I had a hunch and I didn't trust it. Yeah. And I think that, that is, that's something to pay attention to, especially for someone who leads with their intuition. And, but, but again, it doesn't always tell us the truth, but it does provide information that's important to pay attention yeah. to. Yeah. Well, I've, I've heard that what's called tacit knowledge, which is knowledge that we have inside, but we can't articulate it. And we know that. Like, for example, I, I can put my hand in, let's say, bath water and know if it's hot or cold. Like, I can't tell you the degree, but ta- tacit knowledge is I know what that is. And so if you study this idea of tacit knowledge, I don't know where I get philosophical suddenly, but a large amount of our knowledge is tacit knowledge. Like, we don't really know why we know it, but we do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that so much of it really comes down to trusting that idea. Because I've made a lot of really big decisions where reason, I mean, my inner, my inner sense trumps other things. Because if I look at back to your pro-con list, I go, yeah, that I didn't follow that at all. I, <laughs> I followed. And then I think about, you know, I, I'm on a college campus. I'm a college professor. And quite often I'll ask students, how did you choose to come to French University, and I'm stunned by, by what are often very trivial things. <laughs> like, my friend went here. Oh, really? Like, you moved across the country? To, <laughs> to, I mean, your life is probably going to be determined in many ways by this. You're going to find friends. You might find a spouse here, your vocation. And it was just, it was down to, I mean, one, one student said they came because they, liked, they thought the name was funny. Friends University. They thought, I wonder if it's friendly. Oh, that's Sounds funny. Sounds fun. Right, right. <laughs> and I thought, did you think it was like the TV show, Friends? You thought <laughs> Joey and Chandler were going to be here? Right, well. But, you know, maybe they did. Maybe they I don't did. know, but I'm stunned at, <laughs> at how often we make these decisions on, and they have larger impact. But I think that comes back to what you're saying, Emily, and that is when we're talking about living with God in the kingdom, it's okay. God is with us and makes these decisions. I just like how you take the pressure off. Yes. You do that so well of saying, because I think we put so much pressure on so many of the, the bigger decisions in life. And that leads to my my last question. I want to talk about my, I guess, because I love chapter 9 so much, my next favorite is chapter 13, which is don't rush clarity. Don't rush clarity. And you have two pieces of advice in the chapter, and I'm going to read them and let you riff on that. But you, you say this, one, let go of your timeline. And then two, let go of your expectation of certainty. Help our listeners understand why those two things about timeline and certain. I mean, teach us about that because I love this chapter. Well, I'm glad you loved it. Uh, Let go of your timeline. I think that a lot of us, um, and I'll speak as a Christian, you know, I think a lot of times we, uh, we wait for a sense of peace or clarity before we act. 
And so, but we think, but it has to come by Tuesday because, you know, this needs to, this decision needs to be made. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes the decision does need there to be made. There is a deadline, maybe. Yeah, there's a yeah. deadline. Um, but other times we just, man, it's just unmade decisions hold power. And we don't like that power hanging over us. We don't like that, you know, it's like unmade decisions are like toddlers at dinner time. <laughs> it's like they just won't leave you alone until you turn and face them and give them direction of what to do or pick them up or something. You know, they're just, but they're going to keep poking and pulling. Um, so I think there's that, um, there's that idea of, we wait for clarity before we move, um, but clarity can't be rushed. Marie Forleo talks about that. She's a um, she's a brilliant marketer, and so she's not even necessarily writing in the Christian space, but she has fantastic, true advice about this where she says clarity can't be rushed. Um, so if there's a timeline and you have to make the decision, sometimes we have to make it without the clarity, mm. and that is so scary because we don't like it. And then the, the letting go of your expectation— for certainty. Um, here's the thing. Marie Forleo also says, we'll just take her advice here, that clarity comes from engagement, not from thought. And so, you know, when we're, when we're trying to force a decision to be made based on uh, whether or not we have a quote-unquote peace about it or clarity, whatever we want to call that, um, then we might we might feel paralyzed to move until it descends upon us. But sometimes the clarity actually comes through the fog of actually moving. And um, I think I've heard, I've now quoted Parker Palmer twice. Um, I'm going to do it right now. It's a good Quaker. He's so, you a know, good Quaker. Here at University, okay, so then good. it's right on brand. Yeah. But um, he talks about how uh, you, you go through, but oftentimes you don't see the way until you turn behind you. And then you see, oh, way is cleared behind me. It doesn't always clear in front of you. Sometimes it, you don't realize it until you look back. And I think sometimes a lot of decisions are like that. Um, and so we're, we kind of approach it backwards, is that we are, we are waiting for clarity to come. But in fact, I think there's an invitation to us to trust um, Jesus as our shepherd and sort of live that Psalm 23 trusting life of moving through the valley sometimes. It doesn't say we sit down, lie down, or stay. It says, even though I walk through the valley of shadow. Um, but he's with us. And so we can trust that, that we don't have to uh, wait for something before we move, that we can trust that as we move, um, he's going to make something clear to us. But it might not be in my timeline. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Well, I can tell you this. You know, we, we've talked about Parker Palmer. We've talked about Friends University a lot. You, in a matter of days, will be walking across the stage and getting your master's degree from Friends University. Congratulations. What an, what an accomplishment. I mean, you've, you've done it. You, you've got the MA in Christian Spiritual Formation, and I'm guessing it was a good experience. It was plug, a great plug, plug. experience. <laughs> plug, plug, plug. Yeah, it's been, um, it has been one of the great gifts of my life. I'm so grateful, and I Four years ago, never would have imagined, had no plans to do this. In fact, Jim, fun fact, and maybe I talked about this on the podcast before, but this decision was really, um, really one of the ones that hung over my head for a while, for several months, before I even started the Next Right Thing podcast. It was one of those lingering... Should I do the master's degree? Should I do the master's degree? Because it was something that didn't just affect me, but it affected my whole family. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm so glad I said yes. It was the next right thing It was my next right thing and has been for the last two years. (laughs) (laughs) The next right thing that kept on giving. (laughs) Kept on being the (laughs) next right thing. And we'll keep on giving. And so so, I'm so glad you're in the program. You were a blessing to us as well. And I'll be so excited on Saturday to see you in your 
cap and gown. Yes, sir. Getting Yes, that's going to be wonderful. So listeners, again, The Next Right Thing, both the podcast and now the book, Emily P. Freeman has been my guest. She is a Wall Street Journal bestselling author, blogger, Instagrammer. She's fantastic, and uh, we love having her uh, here on the Things Above podcast and conversation. So thanks for being here again. Emily, share with us where, where people can, listeners can find you on the web and other places. Sure. I'm an Emily. Everything really is Emily P. Freeman. So the website, emilypfreeman.com, Instagram and Twitter, Emily P. Freeman. Um, and then the podcast, The Next Right Thing podcast, um, you know, you can always find me there too. And I do. I'm, I'm, an, I'm so a sus- subscriber. Well done. <laughs> Thank you so much. Again, it's been a pleasure to have you. Emily P. Freeman, blessings on you and all you're doing. Thanks, Jim. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if so, please share it with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you'll get them automatically each week. If you're interested in learning more about The Apprentice Gathering and Emily's Workshop, you can learn more at apprenticeinstitute.org slash theapprenticegathering. Well, normally I'd close by saying I hope you join me next week for episode 47, but this is actually the end of season one, and we're going to be taking a short break in the month of July, but we will be back with a new episode on August 7th, and you won't want to miss it, so mark your calendars for that. My hope, as always, is that if one day you are asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above.